I have a poster of Jesus holding a Glock and it's turned to the side. There's nothing more inspirational. But he's a racist, probably. Bit of a cunt. I am so hot and bothered right now. Welcome (laughs) to the Renaissance, episode 62. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know why you started talking about Jesus in a Glock, Ray. It's kind of apropos of nothing, but okay. I'm going to do that all night long. Yeah. Kid, I'm gonna kill you! <laughs> Fuck! Freaking immigrants. Uh, <laughs> now I can't run for office. Because of your fucking soundboard, I cannot run for office. I want to point out the fact that you said these things. I'm just playing them back. I didn't. That's I didn't, the like, sin. I didn't cobble together <laughs> random syllables and to make up words yet. I will get there. The technology's just not finished yet. Right, right, okay. It's like in those, Point taken. In those American TV shows. What if we just took random syllables <laughs> and put them all together? Yeah. We can crazy. fake. No, it doesn't work that way, you idiots. <laughs> Anywho, uh, listen, uh, here we are back at the Renaissance. Now, uh, I think it's, it's time, Ray, that yes. we get back to talking about some of the most influential Artists of mm-hmm. the early 1400s. Oh, rather. We, we, we did a lot of Medici stuff. We, right. did, a, we did a lot of uh, Poggio and his search for the books and all that kind of stuff. I want to get back to painters and yeah. artists for a little bit. It is that's, the Renaissance. Yeah. Come on. Well, yeah, come on. I think that's what most people think when they think the Renaissance. They think painters and you and I are like, fuck, and <laughs> nah, we're going to talk. Politics the, and popes, and well, we are going to talk a pope. Where's the this, art? Uh, next Where's the art? People are chanting <laughs> that. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, I get yeah, it. yeah, yeah. Um, so we're going to talk over the next few episodes about some of the early but highly influential artists. Mm-hmm. Trying to pick a couple of names that people will either recognize if you've been to Florence, you've been to Rome, you've read some books on this uh, period. Um, you will recognise these names. If not, right? Uh, when you go there, you Boom. will re- you will you will see these right. guys' paintings on the walls. You'll hear them talked about, and you'll hear you'll us see in some your of, head. Right? You'll see some of their architecture. Well, listen. I hope, like any time anybody goes to Rome or Florence, Italy, mm-hmm. full stop. In the future, they will be listening to this while they're there. I will be yeah. to drown out your <laughs> constant babbering. Hey, Cam, can we go back to the hotel room now? Cam, can we go back to the hotel room? Cam, can we go back? I'll just fucking put this on. Like, I've got little legs, Cam. It's, actually, it's hard to walk all this way. It takes twice as much effort for me as it does for you. I've, I've recovered. Can we go back? I'm stopped bleeding. Can we go back? <laughs> anyway. Um, yeah, before we get to the Michelangelo Buonarotis and the Leonardo da Vinci's, yes. I want to talk a bit about the guys who came before them and created the movement right. that they inspired were. inspired them. Yeah. The pinnacle of, yeah, inspired them, led the way. Now, we can't cover all of them. There's a lot. And believe it or not, you know, we, we aren't deliberately trying to drag this thing out forever. <laughs> I just want to, no. want to cover some of the highlights. And by the way, the, these guys that we're going to be talking about, they don't just hang in the museums of Italy. They hang in the museums of Paris, of New York, of London. London. Yeah. Um, so uh, this is good stuff. No, and I'm really excited. I'm really yeah. excited to to talk about these guys because they blew my fucking minds when I was uh, studying them over the last week, yes. and and there's always been these guys. I've heard the, I've heard the names. 
over 30 years and I've gone, oh, yeah, that guy, right? I wonder what his deal is. Well, yeah. now, now I know his, their deals. Right. So does Chrissy. I go, hey, and she, <laughs> this guy, she's like, oh, fuck, fuck. now. Where's my earbuds? Oh, my God. <laughs> Can I say that um, since I'm studying um, Alberti, I now believe in reincarnation. I believe he was once you and you were once him. I'm getting pretty deep early on, but I just wanted that said because he truly was a mm. Renaissance mm. man. Mm. And happy birthday to Napoleon, by the way. Happy birthday um, now. 250 old. years old wow. today or yesterday, depending on where in the timeline you want to count it. 15th of August, yeah. 1769. He would be 250 if he wasn't killed, poisoned by the British. That's right, assassinated by the British. Um, I, I did a little U, uh, a little live video yesterday where I talked about this, so forgive me if you've already seen that. Um, not that anybody watches my videos, but um, obviously hugely influential uh, and important in my life, and not just for the obvious reasons. So like, um, you know, you all know that I did the Napoleon show with Markham, mm -hmm. and because of that, I met Chrissy, and because of that, I met you. Mm -hmm. But also, it was it was the, the the book that really got me interested in diving deep into understanding history was the first biography I read on Napoleon, and I've told this story before. I'm going to tell it again because that's just what you do when you get older. Um, <laughs> I was in a bookstore. I was, I was about mm -hmm. twenty twenty one. Um, mm -hmm. I, I was going through a period. Uh, I had been for a couple of years. I might have even been a bit younger than that. Where um, I just wanted to read everything I could. Uh, um, you know, I met a guy, millionaire guy, who said to me, "Invest ten percent of your income in your brain." I said, "What does that mean?" He said, "Just constantly read nonfiction. Like just mm. for the rest of your life, if you want to, if you want to be rich." Just invest 10% of your income in your brain. I was like, right on. And I did. And here I am basically <laughs> bankrupt. So fuck you, guy. But, but uh, he was a bookseller, so he's even more rich now. <laughs> uh, no, he was in real estate. But then mm -hmm. I, uh, there was a there was, in Melbourne near where I worked at the time, there was a, a market still there, South Melbourne Market, and a secondhand bookstall in that market, which is still there, run by a guy called Rod Cameron. Nice. And in fact, when I was in Melbourne in January shooting my doco, I we were shooting around the South Melbourne market and I wanted to get Rod on camera to go, this is the guy that, without which this documentary wouldn't have happened because he kind of oh, led. Right. Anyway, so Rod, it was great. I used to go in and see Rod uh, once a week and I'd go, what do, you, what do you think I should read this week? And he'd go, well, have you ever read, ever heard about this guy? Go, no, he goes, all right, give, here's this. He would just pull books out of his fucking bookshelf Nice. And they were cheap. They were secondhand. He was selling for like five bucks a book. Right? He'd go, hey, this one, this one, that one. I go, right, thanks. I go, I read them in a week. Come back. What else? What else you got for me? Uh, yeah. And, he, and so he just fed my brain for a couple of years that I worked there. Yeah. He was my guy. He was your guy. And then the book guy. I was in a bookstore um, with another mate of mine, still a mate of mine. He is rich uh, down there now, um, kind of our age. And uh, – uh, but had a good education. Went to a you know better school than I did. Right. And um, we're in his bookstore one day, and he goes, "You ever read? You ever read anything about Napoleon?" I said, "No, no, nothing about him." He goes, "Oh, you got to read this." Pulls out Vincent Cronin's nineteen seventy seventy one biography on Napoleon. Um, I go, "All right." Took it home, read it. 
was like, holy shit. So, because in my head, Napoleon was this, um, you know, uh, earlier version of Hitler. Warmonger, yeah, exactly. invaded Europe, yeah. killed millions, you know, real asshole kind of deal. Grew up in a Commonwealth country. That was my sort of in, in inherited view of Napoleon. Mm. Uh, read this book. Fitzy Cronin was an American, and uh, he painted a pretty positive picture of Napoleon in this book. And I was like, well, holy shit. A, uh, which one is true? The version that I thought I knew or this version? And B, how can there be such a difference in uh, a presentation right. of an historical character like this? Facts are facts. Uh, facts are facts. Exactly. History is history. Facts are facts, I thought. Um, being young, dumb, and full of cum. Um, now I'm just dumb and full of cum. Um, except when you're, except when you're around. Uh, that is in me. Go ahead. <laughs> I was just, you, you know, you don't have to go there to paint the visual. Oh, oh. I was just inferring it. You were just the tip. I got gotcha. you. All right. Mm. Uh, so then I went and I read another book on Napoleon and right. it told me a different story. So I read another one. It wow. told me a different story. And I read another one, another one. I read 200 books on Napoleon. And I became obsessed with, holy shit, like <laughs> history isn't black and white. History <laughs> is many shades of grey. It depends right. on who's telling the story and what their interests are and their incentives are, their motivations are. Um, and you can actually go through there and figure out, okay, well, there is no single version of the truth with, with history. There are perspectives. Mm -hmm. right. There are just perspectives. And, uh, I mean, there are facts. This battle happened on this date at this location and this many people died. Mm -hmm. uh, outside of that, everything else is interpretation, is relatively subjective. And you know, then I started reading about other people and other topics, and but it was but it all started with Napoleon. So um, you know, I have uh, you know, Napoleon's been a huge part of my life for thirty years, and um, so you know, I tip my hat to him. Whether you like him or hate him or in the middle, um, certainly. An incredibly influential figure mm -hmm. in history. He, even this, two hundred fifty years later, we're still talking about him. I was going to try and get Markham on to do a podcast right. with me to celebrate, and it was just too hard. Um, I did float the idea on uh, my live video yesterday, Ray, that you and I should redo the entire Napoleon series. Fine. Every <laughs> I'll just well, buy all you, the Markham books, and uh, you know, me go, and go. <laughs> me and the soundboard should redo the Napoleon series. <laughs> Everyone thought that was a great idea, but agreed we'd have to wait. We have to wait till Markham's dead because yeah, uh, he could not. Oh, yeah, you he, would, it. he would go. He'd go back to America from <laughs> Toronto, get an AK, and hunt you down. Me? I, what did I do? Well, he's not going to be able to get to me. I'm in a different country oh. deliberately. Why, why do you think I live here? All right. Well, anyway, so happy birthday, Napoleon. Now, the first written work of art theory produced during the Renaissance was a book called De Pictura, uh, or On Painting in the English translation, mm -hmm. written around about 1435, 1436 by... 
man you mentioned earlier, Leon Battista Alberti. Mm-hmm. Wasn't published uh, officially until sort of around 1450, obviously not printed until a little bit after that, but written and, and distributed uh, amongst a couple of people uh, in, in Florence, in Rome, in places like that in the 1430s, and changed art forever. Not just painting, but also sculpture, and then he wrote other books, which we'll get to. But this guy <laughs> is the first Renaissance man. Mm-hmm. Before, 50 years before Leonardo da Vinci. Before there was Kramer. Yeah. <laughs> Alberti. <laughs> he was a, a humanist author, an artist, an architect, a poet, a priest, a linguist, a philosopher, a cryptographer. <laughs> Batman wrote Thanks. wrote the first autobiography since Saint Augustine. Wow! Uh, in the four hundreds, uh, best remembered as an architect, but he was much, much more than that, and not just an artist either. He was also a mathematician, yes. made huge advances in mathematics in the fifteenth century. He was also an athlete who could ride the wildest horse, climbed mountains, mm-hmm. and could jump over a man's head. While his feet were tied together, which, got to be honest, is a handy talent if you ever find yourself at an S&M party and you forget your safe word. At the age of, well, that you're at an S&M party, that's the point. At the age of 20, he wrote a play which he managed to pass off as a lost work of classical <laughs> literature. He wrote, it in, he wrote it in ancient Latin. And you know, several leading experts of the day went, "Oh, yeah, oh, wow. this is this Fuck is me. this is this is from yeah. ancient Rome." Yeah, this guy was a polymath, right? Yeah. What uh, what what are your introductory thoughts to our friend Alberti? Well, I was going to take everything you just said and sum it up uh, from a line from The Simpsons. Uh, he was all things to all men and to one lucky woman. No, but seriously, this guy, this guy was great at everything. And it reminded me of a JFK quote, if I may. Uh, Kennedy was holding a dinner at the White House for a group of the brightest minds in the nation at the time. And he says to these people, this is perhaps the assembly of the most intelligent ever gathered at one time in the White House, except with the exception of when Thomas Jefferson dined alone. And with everything that you just said, even Jefferson couldn't hold a candle to Alberti. I mean, I think I guess he's just one of those people that's born with... Almost every single natural talent that you can have, which is fine. That's one thing. But he also had the right attitude and the um, ability to develop all of those talents. And again, by the time he's done, like you just said, he is he has advanced the field, so many fields in, in, um, in his time that he does help start the Renaissance. He's one of these guys where if you wanted an advancement in a field... <laughs> And this literally happens towards the end of his life. You go to him and you go, hey, hey, uh, you know what really needs improving? This thing. I'm on it. I'm on it. And then you just sit down and you write a book weekend. that would revolutionise right. the field. Yeah. yeah. I think of him kind of as the Renaissance Agrippa. He yes. was just the guy that you'd go to and say, oh, look, we need, to, we need to reinvent cryptography. Got yeah. it. I'm on it. Let me, <laughs> give, me, give, me, give me five minutes. Boom. Done. While I'm on oh, the by the way. Yeah. By the way, this book on cryptography I just wrote, people won't really understand this for another 500 years. Uh, I'm that good. But hey. Yeah. Yeah, I'm that good. <laughs> I'm that good. People won't understand it for 500 it's years. Deep. 
It's deep. And then they'll go, oh, shit. Yeah, thanks, you. Um, amazing. So the only thing he really wasn't interested in participating in was politics, although he did write about it. He never participated in it. Right. Will Durant, in his book on the Renaissance, refers to Alberti as a monstrously perfect man, which <laughs> is also how Chrissy refers to me. He was born in Genoa right? in 1404 yeah. as the illegitimate son of a wealthy Florentine merchant and banker father who, along with the rest of his family, had been sent into exile from Florence by the Albizzi family, who who we talked about in great detail in our uh, Medici episodes. Albizzi, one of the most powerful families in Florence until um, they went to war with uh, Cosimo and lost. Came in second, yeah. The entire family, uh, his family, uh, the Albertis, they were, they were sort of nobility, uh, rich, been around a long time. They were accused of fomenting the Chompy revolts, which mm. we talked about many episodes mm-hmm. ago. His mother, Leon's mother, Bianca Fieschi, was a widow who died during an outbreak of bubonic plague. Now, mm. unlike other illegitimate sons of nobility, like, for example, Leonardo da Vinci, who was also uh, an illegitimate son. Mm-hmm. Alberti's father accepted him as a son, Aww, uh, a, nice. a bit like Cosimo accepted uh, his mistress's son. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was given a good humanist education in Venice, uh, where his family moved in 1411. According to his autobiography, which he wrote in the third person, Jimmy doesn't like it. Jimmy's getting angry. <laughs> Jimmy can jump over you. Yeah. <laughs> With his feet tied. <laughs> Watch me do it. Yeah. Uh, hold on. i got to do this now. Jimmy played pretty good. <laughs> hey, you know, I, I felt like we had a synergy out there. You know, like we were really helping each other. Now, what do you got there? These? Yeah. These are Jimmy's training shoes. <laughs> I've seen these things. What are they? Uh, they make your legs stronger. Oh yeah. Jimmy couldn't jump at all before he got these. Jimmy was like you. <laughs> <laughs> Jimmy. Jimmy. So. Yeah. Um. Yeah, this is, uh, so he's writing it in the third person. He's autobiography. He writes, although at no hour of the day could you see him idle. Yet that he might win for himself still more of the fruits of life and time. Every evening before going to bed, he would set beside himself a wax candle of a certain measure and sitting half undressed, he would read history or poetry until the candle was burnt up. What was he doing with the other hand? <laughs> and no, and the, other half of the, the other half of the candle. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. So, I get that. Yeah, you get that? I get that. Yeah. Oh, man, that's that's been my entire adult life, like lying in bed, 1 a.m., having go, finished work at midnight, climb into bed and pick up another book and go, okay, well, now I need to read the other stuff that I didn't read when I was doing my work. Right. Yeah, man, it's like life's too short. You want to absorb everything. You want yeah. to just drain it all down. <laughs> because uh, Drain yeah. every drop. <laughs> Alberti's attitude was men can do all things 
if they will. Mm. And he willed. Mm. And so he did as much as he could before he died. You know what my dad would say to that? No. All right, then. I used to say, well, nothing's impossible. He'd go, okay, stick your ass out the window, then run around outside and throw rocks at it. (laughs) Dad, you're being too literal, but yeah. If that worked well, for you. Yeah. So, so like you were saying, his family was exiled. I, I think they were allowed to return back in around 1428. So he studies in different places. Um, he goes to Rome in 1431, takes holy orders and works for the papal court. And whether they know it or not, they've got a major talent. But this guy is not going, going to be limited by the church or anybody. He's going to try. He's going to try his hand at everything. Well, yeah, by the time they were allowed to return to Florence, mm-hmm. uh, it, was same, it was around about the same time Cosimo was able to return ah, to Florence. Right. Uh, his father was dead and his family, I read that his uncles supported him a little bit. I also read that his family cut off his funds, sort of taking advantage of the fact that he was illegitimate. Right. And he was forced to work because mm. these people were very, very wealthy. Um uh, he didn't want to go into the family business. I think they were like silk merchants and bankers. Didn't want to do any of that. He said, I've always preferred to wealth and comfort the understanding of things, good discipline and the mysteries of art. Mm. Um, he also wrote, the learned don't become rich or if they do become rich from literary pursuits, the sources of their wealth are shameful. So he wasn't interested in money, but he ended up going. He had to. He had to earn a living when his family cut him off. Uh, so he went and studied canon law, and he was good at it, but was a little bit angry because he could have been a working artist instead. Right. He could have been actually, you know, if they had kept him on the tit, he could have <laughs> just dedicated yeah. himself to art. But he couldn't afford to do that. Right. Um, now, some for some reason, he had to leave Florence not long after he arrived in 1428, spent the next six years in France uh, as, as sort of, uh, you know, papal secretary sort of kind of thing, doing mm-hmm. canon law stuff. And as you say, in 1431, it, he ended up in Rome, uh, en- ended up as a papal secretary there like Poggio, and was sort of stunned by Rome. Now, we have to keep in mind uh, that Rome was still a bit of a shithole right. in 1431. <laughs> uh, remember, we talked about the fact that uh, you know the popes hadn't been there for a long time. Right. And it was just like a big farmyard, farm bun, yeah. cows and shit, yeah. buildings <laughs> falling down, everything was shit. Right. Uh, but when he was there, he, he was sort of uh, stunned by the Roman architecture, the ancient Roman architecture, what was left of it. Mm -hmm. And he developed, started to develop some tools to enable him to calculate heights and distances of these things so they could be uh, drawn correctly. He invented a wheel and a rope and pulley mechanisms that he could use to sketch this whole thing out. He started just inventing shit. (laughs) Um, But in terms of his work, he was soon given a role in the College of Abbreviators in Mm. the Papal Court. Now, no one knows more about abbreviations than you, Ray. Uh, Can you explain to everybody what the College of Abbreviators did? Uh, No, I can't, but I'd like to take issue with what you just said. No one knows more about abbreviations than Australians because y'all cut the second half of almost every word and end in an O or an I or E. 
So it's it's not the Italians, it's the Australians. <laughs> but I don't know that, so please continue. Fair point, fair point. Um, they basically sat in court, in the papal court, and wrote down the Pope's decisions mm-hmm. about decisions on petitions or the favours he was granting, that kind of stuff, the little boys he was touching up, <coughs> uh, in shorthand. Ah. They were basically fancy shorthand secretaries, but they did it in Latin. So like you see on Roman statues and Roman coins, mm-hmm. you know, you, everything's always written I hate that. In, 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 yeah, me too. <laughs> what does that mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's what these guys did. They would write it all out in shorthand uh, and then it would be sent to some secretaries who would write it out and translate it back into longhand for the, for the official archives. Um, he must have liked the job because he did it for 32 years. Damn. And it provided him with an income that allowed him to explore all of the artistic stuff that he was interested in and write books. And, boy, did he write (laughs) some books. The one you were mentioning earlier in 1435, when he writes the Della Pittura, a treatise on art. You know, he's he's already inspired by what he's seen in Rome. Even though there's not much going on there as far as architecture, what he can see just blows his mind and and he realizes something's been lost. He's uh, inspired by the burgeoning pictorial art in Florence when he was there in the early 15th century. And so he's going, in this this work, he's going to uh, uh, analyze the nature of painting and he explores the elements of perspective, which we've spoken about before, composition and color. And like he's done in so many other things, he's going to take either ideas that already exist or about to exist, or maybe that other people come up with them, and he's able to put them together and create something new and get it out there, which is only going to inspire other artists, whether whether they're painters or whether sculptors or architecture. But this guy, because he has the steady job and he's got this income, like you said, he can go around and he can just explore everything that comes to his mind. And as we've made clear, pretty much everything but politics came to his mind. Just tell me you have your pants on while you listen to that. That's all I need to know. Is it true? Do you? Amen. Suicide is painless. It brings on many changes. Hey, that, ow, that hurt. (laughs) It did hurt. I still feel the pain. I remember the pain. (laughs) Hurts me every time I listen to that. (laughs) So in his book, uh, De Pictura, mm-hmm. uh, he wrote down the first scientific explanation or study of linear perspective, mm. um, which is the art of drawing three-dimensional objects on a 2D surface right. or sculpting them, I guess, sculpting or drawing, but most of us these days think of it as drawing or painting. Now, uh, he dedicated the book to his friend Brunelleschi, who he and Vasari uh, credited with discovering the concept or rediscovering the concept, mm-hmm. uh, inventing the concept or rediscovering it about 20 years earlier. So the story is is that you remember uh, from our uh, much earlier episodes, there's the competition to sculpt the new doors on the baptistery. Right. comes down to Ghiberti and Brunelleschi. Ghiberti wins. Brunelleschi goes, fuck all y'all, <laughs> and he goes to Rome. Right. So apparently while he was in Rome, 
you know, he he obviously studied uh, the 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 architecture of these old Roman buildings. That's why he was able to come back and go that dome thing. Boom! Yeah. Fucking got that. Got yeah. Stand back, hold my beer. How I know how to do it. this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the story is, while he was in Rome, um, he wanted to sketch the old buildings of Rome. He wanted to go mm. and sit up on one of the hills and sketch it all. And he wanted it to look realistic, so he invented or rediscovered right. the rules of linear perspective, how to make it work. Now, when he got back to Florence, he gave, according to Giorgio Vasari, he gave two practical demonstrations. Gather around, everyone. <laughs> Going to show you this new thing I figured out. <laughs> Fucking awesome. I'm a genius. I normally don't tell people how I do shit. But I'm going to. Like, yeah. But this one time, okay, twice. <laughs> Because uh, <laughs> it's that twice, right? I'm going to show you how it's done. That's it. Never ask me again. Right. And this is how he did it. He made two paintings: one of the Palazzo della Signoria, one of the Baptistery. Both, mm. unfortunately, now lost. Oh. But the, he did these paintings, and then he sat people down in front of the Palazzo della Signoria or in front of the Baptistery. And put the painting over the front of it. Look, see, look, hey, wow. look, you can't tell. You can't tell. It's perfect, right? Look, you move. If you sat at a certain viewing point, the paintings perfectly overlapped wow. the buildings from where you were sitting. Now, today we go big deal. Uh, Fox could probably do that. But in 1420, <laughs> yeah. 1415, 1420, this was fucking huge. Yeah. People were like, holy, this is magic. They wanted to actually burn him on a cross. They thought he was a burn wizard. Him. It's like, no, no. Wait, wait till you see what I do next with this dome thing. That's you think this is you think this Don't is magic. Wait till, yeah. wait till you see me yeah. build this fucking dome, man. Um, <clears throat> yeah, and uh, actually, in one of them, I think it was the Baptistery painting. It was seen from behind through a little hole. So uh, they had like a mirror right. that we, that would reflect the the painting, and you could you'd, you'd be looking at a little hole that we'd see the baptistery, and then you'd hold this mirror up, and you could see the painting. You could put it over anyway. It was it was uh, brilliant. People were blowing their yeah. jaws hit the ground. Right, um, man, did he get some blowjobs that <laughs> night? Um, but mostly for himself, he was very flexible. Um, but Alberti. Right, wrote it down and, and took it to the nth degree. He didn't just talk about what Brunelleschi had done. He figured out the mathematics and the science behind it and explained it and wrote it into this book. And it then became the, 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 the basic treatise for every artist that came later. Wow. That was what you did. You went and studied Alberti's book yeah. on perspective and then you understood perspective. And guys like Leonardo da Vinci and Michelangelo Buonarroti learnt perspective, at least in part, by studying Alberti's book. Yeah, and and again, because they were they weren't around when Brunelleschi did his little stunt. Right. <laughs> oh man, I missed it. Damn. Yeah. So so this guy keeps going. In 1438, he begins to focus more on architecture again because he was so blown away in Rome, and he's encouraged by the uh, Marchese. Leonello d'Este of Ferreira, if I'm saying that name right, who he goes there and he builds a small triumphal arch to support the equestrian statue of the guy's father. And so, so again, he's already starting to get commissions. Yes, he's got his regular job, but he's doing these things and he's exploring. And he's just the kind of person, the more he does, the more he learns, the 
more he's fascinated, the more he does. And he just keeps going and he gets commissions and he's able to, again, do all cover all of these different types of art and he's doing it well and he's writing this stuff down and he's paving the path for the renaissance that's going to come after him. That's not sexy. What? This is gold. No, but I can be. Right in the balls. Uh, what? Are you in a hurry? Do you have to go? Do you have to go somewhere? No, no. I was just. Then throwing- why the fuck are you skipping ahead? So I'm like, like halfway through talking about perspective, and you moving on to oh, architecture. I, Come on, man. I apologize. Arch- perspective is huge. It is huge. We- why are you? Why are you like giving it such short thrift? Because I'm, you don't, you don't, you don't love it. It's killer way to freedom. <laughs> I'm pulling a fox. Yes, what he did a couple hundred years ago was amazing, but now it's common because of him. But I apologize. Please continue. Uh, I'm hard. I'm so hard. Jeez. I'm just hard. But I say I take your point, sir. <laughs> you just watch your mouth. Show some respect. <laughs> We're still doing foreplay. I apologize. What do you fucking want? Just tell me what you fucking want. I want to stick on perspective. That's what I want. I want to just stick away. Keep talking about perspective. Look, I took this so seriously. I was reading and reading and reading perspective stuff, and I was like, I still don't understand it. Um, I was talking to James Caffin on Facebook. I said, I don't understand perspective. He said, uh, I was thinking he'd be like, well, come over to my house. I'm like this great painter and artist dude, and I can teach. He goes, just look at this YouTube. I was like, well, fuck, thanks. <laughs> thanks, thanks, Jimmy. Happy happy birthday to Jimmy, by the way. It was the Jimmy's birthday this week. Jimmy's, Jimmy's having a birthday. Jimmy's getting cake. Um, but then I, I watched a couple of other videos. I saw a great video uh, on the Khan Academy's uh, YouTube channel that did a really great job at really helping explain it. Then, right. as people who watch my live stream know, I got out my sketch pad, pencils, rulers, started actually drawing it, uh, doing vanishing points in the horizon line mm. and sketching 3D objects just to try and really – this is the level of this is uh, the level You're of work committed. I do for yeah. these shows. Right? I'm committed. Yeah, I am. Yeah. I'm out birdie. I'm jumping over people's heads here. <laughs> and you just want to, you know, read a Wikipedia page and get the hell out as I'm quickly sorry. as possible. It's the difference between the two of us. Apart, One of the differences, apart from the height, the hair, length of my penis. Um, oh... Do you feel better now? Because that's important to me. It's a good thing I was drunk. <laughs> Perspective. Oh, don't get me started on the Native Americans. Oh, my God. <laughs> you can't play that anymore because my grandfather will turn over in his grave. So. <laughs> Yours and Elizabeth Warrens. Yes. Um, now, the use of perspective mm-hmm. to enhance paintings and make them more realistic was a key factor of humanism and the Renaissance. Alberti said that a canvas should be like an open window through which I look upon that which shall be painted there. Right. Nice. Right. So you shouldn't notice that it's a painting. It should just be an open window. That looks realistic. It was... Just as as in the with the Gothic churches that had been built in the previous couple of centuries, it was recognised that scale and order and proportion were incredibly important when you were building a church. 
now they realized it was just as important when you produced a painting. Mm-hmm. And you had to effectively use a vanishing point to accomplish this. Now, the vanishing point wasn't new. People had understood sort of the concept of perspective and a vanishing point for at least 100 years, but they didn't know how to do it properly. They were just kind of fudging it. Uh, It was their approach, even the great artists of the time in the 1300s, their approach to doing perspective than vanishing point was a bit like me making a birthday cake uh, for Chrissy last year in the kitchen. I was just like, I don't need a recipe. I'm just going to grab a bunch of stuff Throw, throw it, it in. in a bowl, Stir it mix up. it up, yeah. throw it in the oven. I'm I'm Boom. a 49-year-old man, 48-year-old man. Yeah. I don't need no stinking recipe <laughs> to make a stinking cake. Please, <laughs> nigga, just give me the ingredients. I don't even need the ingredients. No, I'll just even, Don't tell me. Don't tell me what they are. Grab, Watch this. Just, Watch just, this. <laughs> and just like the birthday cake that I tried to make Chrissy, <laughs> look... It was edible to a, from a certain point of view. Right. Their paintings had perspective from a certain point of view. Right. But they kind of fell apart and tasted like shit and nobody wanted to eat them. Right. I said, you put enough icing on it, who can tell yeah. the fucking difference? And, you know? and the point you made like, I don't know, 12 episodes ago was that a lot of people were illiterate, they couldn't read, and a lot of this artwork was needed to be understood and conveyed certain ideas that the church wanted to uh, to drive home. So this is important. The, the more, I guess, moving, beautiful, motivating, and accurate picture that you can draw, better for for those who are commissioning it, if it's the church or if somebody wants to, to convey an idea. Now, I want everyone to stop what they're doing, uh, jump on the web and look up Duccio's painting of the Annunciation of the Death of the Virgin, including you, Papa Bear. Duccio, D-U-C-C-I-O. The Annunciation of the Death of the Virgin, painted in 1311. Um, As you'll see, it's uh, sort of set in uh, two rooms, really, Um and there's a, a an angel who right, is um, holding up some sort of a torch, and or, or maybe the torch is in the background, and is saying to an old Mary, um, "Hey, guess what? You're going to die." Ha <laughs> ha. Um, okay. So Aww. now. Do you notice anything? Like it's it's a it's a reasonable. Like I'd be I'd be proud if I could paint something like this. I'm not uh, shitting on Duccio here, but there's, there's some things that don't quite work oh, about it. Yeah, the book, the book on the stand. I mean, it's the pra- practically facing it our way because they don't know how to draw it like it would be. Yes. Yeah. Well, the the, the and and also the perspective of the stand. If you if you draw a line. Right. Um, along the top of the stand that the book's on, mm-hmm. a straight line. And then you look at the ceiling, the the lines of the pa- the boards right. on the ceiling, right. they're coming in at different angles. Their perspective says that straight lines like that should be running, they should have the same vanishing point. But uh. the, if you draw a straight line from all those, like the, the panels in the ceiling mm-hmm. and the book stand, they've got different vanishing points. Also, the trunk that she's sitting on. Oh, yeah. Um, and, 
and the arches, different uh, vanishing points. And if, now, if you look at also the doors where the angel is, the two doors that are open mm-hmm. um, d- don't look right. One of them's open and it just looks weird. Yeah. Also, the angel seems to be half in that doorway <laughs> and half out, yet what? he's talking to Mary who's in another room that's <laughs> inside of that doorway. Yeah. And it, so it this, is, this is... Yeah. This is where, you know, one of the great uh, Gothic masters, 1311, uh, Duccio, uh, where his understanding of vanishing points and perspectives was 100, and, 100 years before or, or 100 and something years before um, Brunelleschi uh, got back from Rome, right? Right. So it doesn't quite work. It kind of looks weird. He's trying to communicate illusion of depth, but he kind of has it all wrong. Yeah. It's kind of, it's, it's clumsy. The attempt, is, the attempt is there, right. Yes. Now, the purpose of painting, like I've said on the show before, I think changed, like the other arts, it, the purpose of it changed over time, like it continues to change today. Um, since the invention of photography, the, the role of painting has changed, uh, particularly in this day and age when all of us have an incredible camera on our phones, what is the role of painting? It, well, it's mm. not really to capture an accurate, realistic uh, portrayal of nature because we can do a better job with our cameras. So painting has to serve different purposes. And, and this was true right throughout history. Mm. If you go right, right, right back, um, you know, if you go back 40, 50, 60,000 years ago where you've got all the earliest cave paintings in uh, France and in Australia, places like that. I mean, obviously, we don't exactly know why these primitive people were painting on cave walls, but we assume it was some kind of a, a record mm-hmm. of these are the animals that we found here, or these, you know, we were here, this is my handprint, or something. Right. Some sort of pictorial representation of for either um, making a statement. Fuck off! This is my cave. Look, you've, I've got my hand on it. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I pissed in the corner. I painted my hand. Don't try and take my cave. Or, or they're telling a story, which is in pre-literate societies, which obviously was all the way up until well, the Renaissance and beyond, depending on what level, what social class you're in. Right. When people can't read. The only way to tell them stories is to literally stand up in a pulpit. Uh, you know, before mass media, before radio, um, the only way to communicate a story to them is to stand up in the town square or stand up in the pulpit and, and read to them. Or you paint pictures, frescoes on walls, mm-hmm. uh, paintings on walls, or sculptures on walls, and people can infer from that. They'll either be able to figure out what the story is if they spend enough time looking at the painting or if they've heard the story before uh, from a literate person or just passed down through oral tradition, um, you know, it will remind them, oh, okay, yeah, that, that's the story of the guy and the thing and the, and the doodad. It's the time <laughs> Jesus, uh, uh, command, yeah. Jesus commanded evil spirits to go into a herd of pigs who then drowned themselves. You know, oh, that story, that makes total sense. Um, So they – but during the Renaissance, particularly in the the elite classes, people were far more literate. They weren't just literate in 
uh, Italian, the right. the like the the um, tongue of the people. Right. They were Latin. Some of them were were also literate in Latin and Greek. Increasingly, as as time goes on in the in the fourteen uh, hundreds, but they could read, and so the the role of painting changes. It's not mm. just well, we're just going to slap dash something up on the wall to tell you a story. It's no, no, no. This needs to emulate nature. This need we need to get as close as possible to being able to paint nature. We need to blow people's fucking minds. That's what painting became right. uh, over the 1400s was how to blow people's fucking minds. Mm. And and Alberti is you know the guy that figured out how to write down the method of doing this at least in terms of things like linear perspective. Right. Now, you know, getting back to uh, uh, the other purposes of uh, paintings in pre-literate societies, you know, telling stories um, and, and a record of what happened. It could also be a menu, like on the walls of brothels in Pompeii, how you advertised your wares. Blowjob, sir? Threesome, sir? <laughs> Anal penetration, sir? Have you been to Pompeii? First time? Yeah. I have not. No, have you? No. You haven't no. been to Pompeii? No. You've seen these, though. I know I've yeah. posted photos of them before. Right? Yeah. That's literally, for people that haven't been to Pompeii or haven't seen this before, that's literally, uh, and they still survive, some of them, uh, there was just like a menu up on the walls of the brothels in Pompeii, uh, just photos of people fucking and sucking. Um, right. And there was like, well, yeah, and a price. That's it that's how you communicated easier. your wares. Yeah. 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 If, if I may just... Coincid- re- coincidentally, what right. I, photos I have up on my walls as well, but <laughs> they're all of you. Um, Aww. So I am famous somewhere. No, yeah, the the, the uh, other part of uh, mentioning why, you know, they're tr- painting pictures or whatever to tell stories is that um, Alberti, after he would paint something, would bring children in, ask them to look at it and say, what does this mean? The painting? And painting. Yeah, come in and look at it. No, sorry, that I just I was thinking Jeffrey Epstein there for a second. Please God. continue. Yeah, so he he paints something and have them come in and look at it. He goes, "What does this mean?" And if they were confused, they they couldn't give a straight mm-hmm. answer or whatever. He would consider the fa- uh, painting a failure. So again, some of it was obviously to inspire or whatever. And for those who could not read, obviously you want to be able to maybe reinforce something or whatever. But yeah, to tell stories, to communicate some information, and that was one of his uh, litmus tests for uh, after he painted something. Mm. And if they if they if they didn't get it, he would trash it and start again. And beat them. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you know, you get it next time, the, won't you? Yeah. <laughs> take them to his private island. Um, now, God. Alberti regarded mathematics mm. as the basic underlying uh, principles, not just of the sciences, but also of art. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Leonardo da Vinci uh, agreed with him and took it to a whole new level. But he, he's the guy that said, well, if we're going to do this properly, if, if we're going to simulate, replicate, represent the real world, the natural world, the scientific world accurately in our art, whether it's painting or sculpture or architecture, we need to understand the mathematics behind it. Uh, so this is where the mathematics comes in. Now, he began his De Pictura or Della Pittura on painting book with the statement, 
I will take first from the mathematicians those things with which my subject is concerned. Mm. So uh, when you start a book on painting with mathematics, yeah. I imagine imagine that, doing that in a liberal arts college. All right, uh, welcome to Painting 101. Chapter 1. I want you to pull, pull out Euclid. Uh, we're going to start understanding Euclidean geometry. Uh, excuse me, press, Professor. Um, I'm going to... I think I'm in the wrong class. Out of this class. Yeah. Where's basket weaving or pottery? All right, thank you. And I'm sure you do. I'm sure if you're doing a fine arts degree like our good friend Alex Kynaston, mm-hmm. I'm sure there's a there's a degree of mathematics that you do study for this very reason. You have right. to understand optics. You have to understand Symmetry, perspective, etc. Exactly. Now, did you read about Alberti's knowledge of optics and the history of optics in your detailed, not abbreviated research on the subject? Not that, No. I am so hot and bothered right now. Yeah, of course you didn't. Nailed it. Uh, well, let me let me talk to you about this then. So, perspective is inherently tied in with with a knowledge of optics. How do we see things? Mm-hmm. How does sight work? You can't understand perspective unless you understand how sight works. Now, his knowledge of optics was connected to a long-standing tradition that goes back to the Arab Islamic polymath, mm. Al-Hatsan, he's normally called uh, sort of in English, uh, Ibn al-Hatham, right. I think is the Arab uh, 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 version of his name, died around about uh, 1041. He wrote the classic work on optics called De Aspectibus, or The Optics, in 1011 to 1021. Mm-hmm. A bit like me, took 10 years to write a book. <laughs> now, up until that time, mm-hmm. the dominant theory, going back for 1,500 years, of how sight worked was what they know, what is known as extramission theory. Right. Now, I know you, you quite often have a nightly extra mission, but this is different. This is about <laughs> things that come out of your eyes, not oh, out of your penis. Oh, not, out of, not out of the one-eyed monster, <laughs> but out of your eyes. The idea, nocturnal emissions, that's what you have. The idea was that visual perception worked by beams that were shot out of the eyes. It's like Superman's heat rays. Right. They thought you would... The way the vision worked is beams were shot out of your eyes and then hit the thing that you were looking at and, I guess, bounced back and communicated something uh, to your eyes. Not bad. Not a bad theory. Well, not bad. It dates back to the 5th century BCE, mm-hmm. invented by a guy called uh, Empedocles. He was a pre-Socratic Greek philosopher. Plato uh, believed in extramission theory. Most quasi-early scientists and philosophers believed in extramission theory. A few didn't. Lucretius didn't. Euclid didn't. But nobody listened to them. Lucretius wrote, The light and heat of the sun, these are composed of minute atoms, which, when they are shoved off, lose no time in shooting right across the interspace of air in the direction imparted by the shove. Mm. And everyone said, you're fucking crazy until (laughs) Einstein came along 
and went, uh, I reckon light's made of uh, particles called photons. And they went, you're fucking, oh, <laughs> oh, shit. Yeah, right on. Well Good done, on Einstein. Yeah. Yeah. Lucretius <laughs> came up with that 2,000 years earlier. Fuck me. Fuck me, indeed. Euclid asked, how one sees the stars immediately if one closes one's eyes then opens them at night? Ooh. If beams are coming out of your eyes, right. they would have to go up to the stars, bounce off and come back. Yeah, yeah. How come when you open your eyes, you can immediately see the stars? I guess it doesn't make any sense, your extra mission theory. It's bullshit. Calling bullshit <laughs> on that. People were like, what the fuck would you know? Sit down and write your stupid book about angles. It's like, all right, well, hey. Just you know, saying. Just, just throwing it out there. Just observing. Right. Yeah. Don't get mad at me for my facts. <laughs> Or questions Facts that make don't you don't care. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Science doesn't care if you believe in it. <laughs> now, believe it or not, and I believe it, a study in 2002 found that as many as 50% of adults still believe in extra mission theory. Oh, my God. We're doomed. We're fucking doomed. <sighs> yeah. Just tell me it's not God, the Bible. Just tell me it's not the Bible. No, but I bet the people who believe in extra mission theory also believe in the Bible. (laughs) And probably flat earth theory and uh, uh, and that vaccinations give you autism. Now, getting back to Ibn al-Haytham, he in 1011 went, I'm calling bullshit on that. He developed intromission theory that vision takes place by light entering the eye. Uh-huh. And he was the first person to point out that vision occurs in the brain, not oh. in the actual eyes. And oh. I guarantee you that most people still don't understand that. Yeah. Most people, I think, still think you see with the eyes. Mm-hmm. They don't realize that the eye is basically just like a glass ball. Light just goes through it yeah. and, you know, registers and gets turned into electrical signals which go through to the brain and the brain goes, all right, let me, let me, let me tell you what's going on here. That's let me price. paint a picture for right. you. That's a price for a blowjob. I recognize that. It's the price for a – oh, I see. I see what you mean. Yes. Flashback. Yeah. Uh, so he's known – this is Ibn al-Haytham as the father of modern optics. He, by the way, was also an early proponent of the concept that a hypothesis mm-hmm. must be proved by experiments based on confirmable procedures or mathematical evidence. Ooh, brainy code. So the scientific method right. that started to become popular in the West uh, in the Renaissance really developed. I mean, Aristotle played a role too, but it was uh, really this guy, Ibn al-Haytham, that said, no, no, really, needs to be provable. Right. Um, Here's what he wrote. The duty of the man who investigates the writings of scientists, if learning the truth is his goal, is to make himself an enemy of all that he reads and attack it from every side. He should also suspect himself as he performs his critical examination of it, so that he may avoid falling into either prejudice or leniency. Damn. Confirmation bias, I'm calling it, said Ibn al-Haytham. What a fucking legend, Ibn al-Haytham, mate. 10-11. Damn. 
And we're still, yeah, never mind. No, but seriously, right? Yeah. Like, and still, people today don't understand the scientific method. He invented it thousand years ago. Yeah. Jeez. What a fucking legend, man. Um, there you go. By the way, you know, people are like, wow, Islam. I mean, I'm sure most people listening to this know about the golden age of Islam when they, um, you know, were on the cutting edge of, mm-hmm. of scientific thinking. And I was reading a lot about him, Ibn al-Haytham, over the last week, and when it, he was very religious. Um, but, you know, he, like, you know, sort of mainstream uh, Islamic thought at the time was, well, God would want us to get as close to the scientific scientific truth as possible. Right. Why? What kind of God wouldn't want us to get to the truth of things? That sounds like a shitty God. Um, God, God loves science. God made us made the universe to study yeah. science. Yeah. Right? He wants us to understand his, his creation. His world. Exactly. Exactly. It was a it was a much more enlightened view of science than I think most Christians have today. And that and, and it would also be interesting. I'm I'm sure he was saving himself well, excuse me, he had less chance of being harassed by the church or the state because he was deeply religious. But as we have probably talked about and you and i've read getting ready for some of these shows people have been um when we were doing lucretia's i mean people have been christians they've been highly uh, religious still would find something that would make them question the church and they could end up in a, in a lot of trouble so i wonder i guess the church or state at his time in his location must have been a lot more tolerant than, than the western church in order to say those things write those things down and pursue this line of questioning are they iranian no, he was Iraqi, I think. Iraqi. Um, Still East. Iraqi. Yeah. Iraqi. Yeah. yeah. Double standard, baby. Well, yes, it was a double standard, but just in that the is- <laughs> Islam at the time uh, had this much more enlightened view of science and religion than Christianity would for another thousand years. Right. But eventually this knowledge gets to Italy in the Renaissance via mm-hmm. people like Ibn al Haytham, and they are bringing it back, baby. <laughs> yes, they're bringing it back. But <laughs> 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 oh, oh, damn! 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 Don't do that, Cam. Yeah. Give me, give me a length of time. Give me a length of time when this is going to become boring for you. Two years. Ten years. Just you want to know my answer to that? Yeah. Hell, I don't. <laughs> well, as long as you're happy because, you know, you're on this planet, you're alive for a little while, there's no meaning to life, and then you're dead. So if it makes you happy, it makes me oh, happy. It does. It makes me so happy. <laughs> I, was, I was sitting on the lounge the other night making some new clips, and Chrissy came out, and she was like, my God, you just love Ray so much. I said, I do. I do. Just like cutting these clips up and thinking about how I was going to use them right, just was just making me giddy. so happy. You're giddy. You've no idea. Yeah, giddy. Just no idea. Oh, so happy. Well, that's- uh, in both um, Della Pittura and mm-hmm. the book he wrote after on sculpture, Di Statua, mm-hmm. uh, he Alberti stressed that all steps of learning should be sought from nature. The ultimate aim of the artist, he said, was to imitate nature. Painters and sculptors strive 
This is a quote from him, through by different skills at the same goal, namely that as nearly as possible, the work they have undertaken shall appear to the observer to be similar to the real objects of nature. Mm. Now, this was, this was uh, uh, revolutionary thinking at the time. Right. Again, if you look at the paintings of the 1300s, even the great masters like uh, Giotto, they don't resemble nature. They're more uh, uh, interpretive. They're, they're trying to depict right. people and things in a certain way to give you a certain feeling. They're more impressionist, really. So obviously a movement that would come back to art eventually when it got too easy for painters to do realism, then they'd start going, well, let's fucking Cubist this shit right. up, you know, or Pointillist or, or Van Gogh it up, you right. know, make it all slurpy and shit. This is this realist it. stuff is yeah. too easy. Anyone can do this shit. Yeah. But when Alberti's writing this book, it was a new idea. People are like, huh, close to nature, hey? Mm. Mm. Stroking their chins. He's mm. under something. The work of art, according to Alberti, is so constructed that it is impossible to take anything away from it or add anything to it without impairing the beauty of the whole. Nice. He defined beauty as the harmony and concord of all the parts achieved in such a manner that nothing could be added, taken away, or altered. Wow. Now, here's the thing, though. According to Giorgio Vasari, writing his Lives of the Eminent Artists a hundred or so years later, Mm -hmm. Alberti wasn't actually a great artist. Mm. Did some paintings, did some sculpture. Not much of it survived even in Vasari's day, even less today. We've only got a handful of things that he did. But he said Alberti was more of a dabbler. He was better at writing about it than actually doing it himself. Right. He wasn't a full-time artist. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe he could have been, but he was doing canon law. He was sitting in papal court all day abbreviating words down to a bunch of letters and dots. Right. Uh, he didn't have time. He, he would, you know, and he spent the time that he did have writing and thinking mostly. Yeah. That said, he did design some buildings, but they were always built by other people. Mm-hmm. Sometimes he didn't even see the finished work. Now, one of the most beautiful churches in Florence, the Santa Maria Novella, uh, that we didn't, see when we were in Florence, but it was right next door to, you know, when we got off the bus, um, when we arrived in Florence, where we dropped off, bus dropped us off and also picked us up. Right. So um, it was right next door to that, but um, we we didn't walk in that direction. We walked in the other direction. When we go back, I swear to God. But the Santa Maria Novella, I've talked about it on the show before, but it it has this beautiful marble uh, facade Mm -hmm. that, uh, in the sort of style that's very similar to the facade that ended up on the uh, Duomo, Um, it was designed by Alberti. Somebody else built it, but he designed it. Yeah. He also wrote the 10 books on architecture, that was modelled on Vitruvius's classic work, but his book was printed a year before Vitruvius's was. Wow. And uh, according, but he'd read Vitruvius, I assume. I can't remember when that, I mean, we talked about this. I think it was Poggio that discovered Vitruvius's work. Mm-hmm. Um, I, 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 I'm assuming that uh, Alberti got his hands on an early uh, hand uh, uh, copied version of that 
and also uh, you know, built on top of that, had his own thoughts, his own ideas from his own studies. From what I've read, his book improved on Vitruvius. It was clearer. It was better structured. Right. It became the, the major sort of architectural guidebook of the Renaissance. So if you wanted to paint, you went to Alberti's book on painting. If you wanted to sculpt, you went to his book on sculpting. If you wanted to build <laughs> shit, you went to his books on architecture. He was basically a one-man yeah. university for the arts. L- let me ask you, so when you were saying a couple of minutes ago, the art historian, and who was, an, I think, an artist himself to some degree, Valera, when he was saying that about... Vasari? Vasari, I'm sorry. Vasari. Uh, where do I get the new banner? Anyway, so when, when he writes something like that, is... Did it come across to you as an attack or he was just being just just trying to put this guy in his proper context in the in the history of the ever evolving art? Did it feel like an attack or was he just trying to say, yeah, what he his contribution was really this, the teaching of the science of versus the the um, execution of artwork? I don't know why he would want to attack him. He says, uh, you know, he he describes him as an admirable citizen, a man of culture, a friend of talented men, open and courteous with everyone. He always lived honorably and like the gentleman he was. Mm-hmm. So I don't think he's going to – he's not attacking him. Right. He doesn't have any gripe against him. I think it's his honest um, uh, opinion of the quality of his art – um, you know, he speaks very highly of him as a person and mm. also the quality of his writings. Right. Just wasn't, you know, wasn't a dedicated artist. He was a dabbler. He, yeah. he could apply his stuff, but he wasn't Da Vinci, right? Gotcha. Um, but Da Vinci took his stuff and built on top of it. Um, now, with architecture, um, his book on architecture covered everything from the history of architecture to town planning, engineering, the philosophy of beauty. All I read a statement, I, I assume this is true, all architecture today is still Albertian. Wow. Uh, architects today still follow the principles that Alberti laid out in his masterpiece on architecture. He dedicated the book to Pope Nicholas V, mm-hmm. who we're going to talk about in our next episode in great detail. Right. He was the first humanist pope, the first Renaissance pope, the guy who decided, you know what, Rome's a shithole, I'm going to rebuild it. <laughs> and he act- yeah. he hired Alberti to restore the papal palace, what yeah. we think of as the, the Vatican. He, he it, it was a shit heap. And he said, you know what, this needs to be redesigned. Alberti, come and redesign yeah. it. He also, I mean, Nicholas, as we'll see in the next episode, hired pretty much everyone. <laughs> tried to bring him to Rome to rebuild Rome. Like, you know, limitless money. Just come. Doesn't matter. And yeah. he would bribe people with whatever it took to get him to come to Rome to make Rome great again. He um, he hired uh, Alberti to create a new fountain at the end of the Aqua Virgine, which was the aqueduct first built by... Agrippa? In... Fuck, I don't know. Mm. Previously. <laughs> <laughs> no. Hell, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Do you have a month, a day, a week, a year? I'm baffled. I'm sorry, bear with me. Let me look here. Boop, do, 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 do. <laughs> Do you want to take a guess what year it was? Um, 
Uh, fuck. Uh, I have no idea. BC or CE? It was a guess. I'm impressed. BC or CE? You just said it was built by a gripper. A gripper was dead in oh, BCE, I'm dummy. Of, I'm thinking of. Uh... No, no, you're not thinking. Don't, don't pretend you're thinking. 19 BCE. 19. The gripper built the Aqua. It was called the Aqua Virgo, I think, at the time. Aqua Belva. Changed its name to the Aqua Virgine. <laughs> So Alberti creates a new fountain at the end of it. Now his fountain was replaced by another fountain, which is the... Trevi Fountain. Trevi Fountain. Where I watched a fight at the Trevi Fountain. That was a lot of fun. But anyway, I digress. You watched a fight? Yeah. Uh, When we got back from our trip to Rome, I I was telling you, there's no reason for you to remember, but I was telling you, uh, I saw it on YouTube on the news. Somebody, so two ladies were trying to get in the perfect spot where the sun and the backdrop oh, behind them. They, yeah, and one yeah. of them got pushed into the water. So the Italian cops came out. Would, would you fucking get out of here? And they pushed them both away. Anyway, I thought it was entertaining. But not while we were no, there. I thought you meant no, while we were no, there that been cool. at the Trevi Fountain. That would have been, cool. been cool. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, now, Alberti, uh, having taken holy orders at some point, uh, remained unmarried for his entire life. He loved animals, had a pet dog, a mongrel, for <laughs> whom he wrote a panegyric, a funeral oration. Um, might have been gay, don't know. Uh, right. I didn't read any mention of that, but a lot of these guys that took holy orders, these artists um, uh, or, you know, priests were. But um, don't know. We've got right. n- no mention of that. Descri- I guess that's why he had time to write books. He wasn't sticking his dick in anything. And Good amazing how much you can get done when you stop Amen. sticking your dick into things. Amen, brother. Mm. Uh, in 1467, I want to finish with this. Towards the end of his life, he developed something called the Alberti Cipher. Well, that's what it's known as today. He wrote a book called Deciphorus. Mm. Not Deciphorus. Um, the Deciphorus, basically the ciphers, which was a turning point in cryptography. Mm. So he's not only the father of perspective and the father of fucking architecture and sculpture, he's the father of Western cryptography Damn. as well. Now, cryptography obviously goes back to the, I think the Spartans were the first people to develop military cryptography. Mm-hmm. Uh, Julius Caesar had his own method of cryptography for, for um, uh, secret communications to his, his troops, etc. But these were all extremely simplistic right? Com- compared to Alberti's method. And as I said at the beginning of the episode, the work that he did in this book only really became important in the 20th century, in the early 20th century, Mm. the ideas behind it. Before that, it seems to have survived because I think there are 15 existing first edition manuscripts of it. Um, They'd only survived because people just thought it was weird. Right. They were like, check out this fucking shit that this guy's on about, man. He's Okay, linear perspective, that was genius. His sculpture, his architecture, genius. And then he came up with this crazy shit. Dude obviously lost his mind towards the end of his life. (laughs) Was was it because in order to use his ideas as far as that, did you have to have a computer? I mean, was it too complex? Did people not get it? Or was it not needed until the paranoid 20th century? I'm just curious if you stumbled across... Anybody it was just it? over, oh. yeah. It was just over people's heads. Right. They were like, we "Oh well, we could do, <laughs> we could do that, yeah. sure, yeah. but uh, fuck me, like we're not all right. We're, we're not all polymath <laughs> geniuses." I use the Ray Harris method when I send secret codes. I write it 
backwards, wait for it, and upside down. Wow, do you really? Is that how you write your notes <laughs> for our shows? Because that would explain so a lot. much. It would. Mm. Now you're mm. on to my secret. So here's the here's the deal. Yeah. He was walking in the Vatican Gardens one day with his uh, old friend Leonardo Dati, who is the Apostolic Secretary of Pope Paul II, mm-hmm. who said, uh, "You know, you know what you should do? Come up with a better way of encrypting correspondence." He's like, "Fucking on it!" <laughs> Went wrote a book, gave it to him. <laughs> came back on the Monday. Here it is. Now, the the Alberti cipher involves a disc. I think it was supposed to be made in copper. Okay, I like this. With a polyalphabetic substitution. This is where, this is what he invented. This is the genius. Yeah. Uh, Multiple alphabets has two concentric rings. There's There's a outer ring engraved with the standard alphabet and then an inner ring yeah. engraved with the same alphabet but written out of order. This is what the Germans and used. Go ahead. Sorry. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. This is what I'm talking This is like the Enigma machine, yeah. right? This is... Exactly. Uh, the, the, he invented this shit. <sighs> How to jumble this shit up. Right. And not only that, so you would rotate the inner ring and the outer ring to uh, match it all up based on a you know, certain order. And there, were, there was four numbers on the outer ring. And the the numbers were associated with a code book that contained 336 pre-assigned phrases to certain numerical values. Right. So his, you know, he did this abbreviation. He was in the abbreviator. So he understood how to cut out all of the non-essential letters. Right. So he applied that. He'd studied language, obviously, his entire life. He goes, okay, well, you don't need all these letters for a start. We can get rid of all of these. You can communicate with a lot less letters than you think you need. Plus, we'll have 336 pre-assigned phrases that are just associated with a number that you can't work out unless you've got the code book. Plus, we'll have two alphabets, one of them all jumbled up, to write the rest. Boom. It would have been impossible to break without knowledge of the method. And, as you said, it then took... Alan Turing <laughs> to invent a computer to invent a computer <laughs> just to break to figure out how to break the method Fuck. And, and when that, you don't have the code books right and that that even doesn't explain it because they were able to get one from Poland in 1939 so yeah they had some inside knowledge yeah. but fuck me yeah. that's impressive yeah that was what he did at the end of his life. He came up with that in 1467. Yeah. He died five years later, 1472, at the age of 68. Yeah. Now, the one thing that I did um, find, in, well, I, obviously this man's very fascinating, but I found out, obviously he's a humanist. Obviously he's a Christian. He believes in the church, but he did... And, and how could he not, considering his talents compared to everybody else's? But he did fear for the future if Christian belief went into any kind of decline. And kind of like Thomas More, he really didn't have too much trust in human fa- uh, human behavior without the fear of some kind of higher power. So I'm sure he saw a lot of good and a lot of bad in his life. And, and someone who's just as talented as, as, as himself uh, probably looks around at everybody else and goes, yeah, yeah, it's probably a good thing there's a God and there's a good thing there's a fear of God because who knows what we would become without something like that. I don't know what to believe. I can't <laughs> believe that. I'm baffled. <laughs> <laughs> 
I want a threesome with two NFL cheerleaders. Well, that is the Leon Battista Alberti story. Hour 20, we went long. Hope you enjoyed that. We'll be back next week. We'll be talking about another early Renaissance artist, Fra Angelico, and also the man who is the patron of both Alberti and Fra Angelico and others, Nicholas, Pope Nicholas V, Nicky, Nicky the Five. We'll be back next week. <laughs>